0: battle that was ever fought on American American soil, 165,000 soldiers, and one-third of those soldiers were casualties, 51,000 casualties. Now, the reality of the Civil War, or the Battle of Gettysburg, was that if the Union Army had destroyed the Confederate Army, that would have been the end of the war. And Lincoln knew that. That didn't happen. The war dragged on for two more miserable years with a tremendous loss of life. So Lincoln told General Meade, after the battle, that was a horrible battle, it was fought on July the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1864. uh, 1863, sorry. And here you had 51,000 casualties And Lincoln said to George Meade, do not let the Confederate army escape. Destroy the Confederate army. He sent one frantic telegram after another to Meade, and Meade disobeyed them all, and he allowed the army to escape. And in our valley, you'll find stories of those wagon loads of screaming, moaning men with blood running out, backs of the wagons, as they went down through the valley and the Confederate Army escaped. Now, understandably, everybody demanded that General Meade be court-martialed for disobedience. Lincoln did not do that. He allowed him to be honorably discharged. Why did Lincoln do that? Well, Lincoln said, I was not at Gettysburg. <clears throat> I was not there to hear the screams of dying men for three days. If I had been there in the midst of that horrendous, hellish carnage, I might not have had the heart to destroy a wounded army. There's a word that describes people like Lincoln. Now, he was a, a war leader. Jesus used uh, examples from wars, so I felt free to do that. I mean, He did, of course, command killing in the war, and he demanded the army be destroyed. That's bad. But there was this side to Lincoln. Uh, He was dealing with a reality that earthly leaders have to deal with. It's this word. That's a big word that means a big heart. Lincoln was a big-hearted man. There are many stories. In fact, I'm reading a little book of anecdotes right now Many situations where people came to Lincoln and he just had a heart. He had a heart for people. Well, Jesus knew that his followers would need those kinds of hearts. Okay? He was not a starry-eyed idealist. He knew what was in man, John 2, 25. He had learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, that didn't mean he had to learn to obey like we have to learn to obey. What that means is he learned what it costs to obey as a human being. And he can say to God, do you see that decision he's needing to make? I was down there one time, and I know what it feels like, what it costs for him to make the right decision. He needs our help. He learned what obedience costs. He knew it was difficult. He knew it was painful. He knew it was impossible without the grace of God. He knew all of that. He knew he had set lofty ideals. He knew that in the first part of this sermon, he had talked, as we talked the other night, about a new kind of person who's free of anger, who's free of lust, who's free of dishonesty, who's free of revenge, who's free of violence. He knew he had pictured people who who had that kind of idealistic response. He knew he had talked about a new society where the tyranny of property was broken where there was vital faith without hypocrisy. He knew he had pictured the ideal society and he knew how difficult that would be to attain. He knew he had called for a colony of heaven on earth. As impossible as that may sound, he knew that's what he had called for. And many people have relegated it to the future or have done all kinds of things with this teaching because they don't think it's real. They don't think it's real. So I really have always appreciated this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tackles the reality of this ideal. All right? What are the practical problems to be overcome? And how are they overcome? He saw there would be a mixture between the weak and the strong. There would be a mixture of the true and the false. There would be a mixture of the faithful and the unfaithful. He knew all of that. All of those things that we know, he knew. I mean, certainly, he knew that. And so, what we want to look at tonight is four kingdom cautions. All right? Four kingdom cautions. The first one is how do we relate these ideals to our fellow brethren? Where there is weakness and strength, where there's failure sometimes, where things happen that shouldn't happen, how do we handle this? Without just, are you aware that during the hippie movement, there were literally hundreds of communes established where they shared everything and they were gonna love each other so much they were gonna eat each other, and then they ended up trying to do that, and all of them failed. Every one of them failed, every one of them. And Jesus knew that, He knew that these ideals (laughs) were gonna prove to be impossible without some cautions. So the first one he talks about is how do we relate this to fellow believers? And so the first thing he talks about is, I'll put these on the board in case you're writing them down, correct with compassion. Whoop, strange things happen when you're writing on the board in public. Sorry. Correct with compassion. Now, we Anabaptists have been passionate about <laughs> having perfect churches, having ideal communities. We we've we've caught this. And we 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 have always had this tremendous ideal. We're going and new groups go out and they start and they're, they're gonna have this, they're gonna get it right. But why is it in Ephesians, it talks about the church building up and building up and building up and building up until we come to a perfect man, to a perfect representation of Christ? That's not the experience of most churches. They usually start up here somewhere and it goes this way. How many agree with that? Your hands are a little tentative there. That's my observation. Why? Why? The beautiful ideal ironically turns into a nightmare of misery. Galatians 5, 14 and 15 says, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as self. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. And Jesus understood what we don't see. He said, do not judge. Now I told you the other night that that word is condemn. And I told you the other night, if you change one letter in that, you will have the meaning of the word. If you change one letter in that part of the word. To damn is to put down. To damn is to uh, demean. He's not saying don't discriminate. At the end of the chapter, he says, "Check, watch out for false prophets. Watch out for uh, lawless miracle workers. Watch out for the undisciplined life. Watch out for foolish people who don't build their house on the rock of my teachings. He tells us we're supposed to discriminate. We're supposed to be very sensitive to what's right and what's wrong, but we are not to condemn. We are not to condemn. This word judges is the same as the word judges in Romans 2 where he said, who are you that judges another? You do the same things. It's the same word. Okay. It's to tempt to raise ourselves by putting others down. I call it the Haman syndrome. It's condemning self-righteousness. And it's wrong for three reasons. Number one, it's the opposite of what Jesus did. It says God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He could have. He could have just come here and just lambasted everybody and put every No, no. He didn't come to do that. This is the same word in John 3, 17, that we have here. Don't judge. It means to put on trial, to pass sentence, to punish, to avenge, to give a final verdict, to put into an unredeemable category. Jesus put himself down. Philippians chapter 2 says he was at the very top and he stepped down, 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 down to death, and that wasn't even at the bottom, death of the cross. That was the absolute bottom of human society. He did that so he could raise us. In fact, he says that he'll never judge anybody. Did you know that Jesus is never going to judge anybody? I want you to see this, so I want you to turn to John 12. And we're reading verses uh, 47 and 48. He says, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. It's the same word. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. We're not going to be judged in some personal way by Jesus. We're going to be judged by the word we've already told us. It'll be the word. Not him putting people down. The word is where the judgment's going to be. So it's wrong to condemn because Jesus didn't do it. And he never will. He never put people down. Now he had some scribes and Pharisees he was pretty hard on at one point. But I say to people, if you're going to say the kind of words he said in Matthew 23, then be sure it ends like Matthew 23 ends, where he sits down and weeps over the city. That tells you his attitude. He wasn't trying to put people down. He was trying to put them right in their thinking. Okay. Number two, number one, it's the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus never, I told you the other night, you may have to say things to people that hurt, but be sure you say them in a way that is not hurtful. Make sure the way you said it is not what causes the hurt. I'm preaching this to myself, folks. Those of you who know me know that I have not done this perfectly. So I'm not trying to put you down. I'm trying to help you understand what I'm trying to understand myself. Number two, it's wrong because it causes us to project our own faults on others. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, Wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. So what he's saying is, if you have this attitude, it grows out of your own sin. Why is it that a, a person who is a liar seems to be super sensitive toward any dishonesty that anybody else demonstrates? Why is it that proud people are usually sensitive, more sensitive than anybody else to somebody else who's proud? Why is it that a lustful person picks up every little indiscretion morally that anybody else does. He says when we have this judgmental attitude, this put down, I'm not talking, saying we shouldn't be concerned about lying, we shouldn't be concerned about pride, we shouldn't be concerned about lust or immorality. I'm not saying that. But the person that has the put down attitude in dealing with it, Jesus is saying, or the Bible is saying, probably it grows out of your own sin that you are so... Wanting to put other people down because, see, that helps to raise you. It causes us to project our faults one onto other people. Some years ago, we had a TV evangelist that got involved in in uh, some uh, immorality, and then we had the spectacle of another TV evangelist. You probably, maybe you don't remember. Maybe you're too young who got on his TV program and lambasted the other person and just condemned him and put him down and tried to destroy him. A year later, we found out that the person who did that was doing the same thing, only worse. Galatians 6.1, it says that that restoring another person, correcting another person carries a high risk of self-righteousness. Okay? It carries a high risk of self-righteousness. It says, Restore such in one in the spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. Have you ever noticed when the other person acts that way, he's ugly? When you do, it's nerves. When others are set in the ways, they're stubborn. But when you do, when you are, it's firmness. When your neighbor doesn't like your friend, he's prejudiced. When you don't like his friend, you're a judge of human nature. When he tries to treat someone specially, well, he's toadying. When you tried, you're being thoughtful. Did you ever notice we tend to put other people to a higher standard than what we have for ourselves? And the third reason is it misses the goal of true correction. The goal of true correction is to redeem the brother and build up the church. So what is the answer? Well, He says, quit beholding the beam that's in thy brother's eye. The word here is gazing, staring at it, focusing on it. That's what we tend to do. Magnify it in our thinking. He says, quit doing that. Quit doing that. We're always trying to raise ourselves somehow. We're always trying trying somehow to, you know, (laughs) I'm reminded of the man who wrote a book on child training. He either was unmarried and didn't have any children. I tell people if you want the best talks on child training that I ever gave, get the ones I gave before I was married. Anyway, and so the title of the book was 10 Ways to, let me get this right, 10 Surefire Ways to Raise Spiritual Giants. And I mean, if you wanted all the good advice on child training, it was in that book. (laughs) Ten years later, the book was out of print. He now had children that were growing up. And so he revised the book and put it back into print. And the second title was 10 Child Training Principles. 10 years later, his children were all grown and they'd all left home. He revised the book and he put it under a different title. The last title was A Few Child Training Suggestions You Might Find Helpful. (laughs) It's that attitude That we all struggle with. We all struggle with this. And so he says the thing you need to do is focus on securing your own repentance first. Cleanse the hypocrisy. It's easy to act like we're concerned when we're gossiping. It's easy to glory in other people's faults, it makes us look good. Gossip gives us status. And so he says, examine your own faults. Scrub your heart, just like you're preparing for a delicate operation on the eye. It's interesting that Jesus chose the eye. You would scrub to make sure you didn't introduce any pathogen into that eye. And if you're going to correct your brother, you introduce some pathogen of self-righteousness. This is simply going to cause more problems. The emphasis is on clearing your own eye. And don't you go talk to that brother until you at least can reasonably say to yourself, I have nothing in mind but to see that brother redeemed, to see this problem resolved, and to see my brother built up in Christ. The emphasis is on clearing the eye to see properly versus self-righteous distortion. Number two. So get your own repentance taken care of, and don't you dare go to the brother till those those attitudes that we all recognize, I think, have been pretty well taken care of. And then secondly, gently correct the brother in the spirit of meekness. Self-righteousness sees the mode. It just stands and gazes at it. A clean heart sees how to remove it, if it was even there in the first place. Your brother is precious to you. You may need his eyes someday to help you. And he may be the only person who can help you. And if he gets eliminated, you're missing the help that you need sometime in the future. Here are some cautions. Hate, greed, jealousy, and hurts are contagious. Avoid people who go around talking about such things. Number two, fight against gossip. Somebody says gossip is that which goes in both ears and comes out the mouth greatly enlarged. Avoid it. Avoid gossip. Fight against it. I'm not sure we ever can completely avoid it, but we should fight against it. In fact, I know a sister in our congregation that I don't think anybody would go and gossip to her because she'd stop them right there. She'd get quiet. And she might say, did that really need to be said? Or something which very sweetly she would say, you'd be rebuked if you tried to gossip to her. I wish I were that kind of person, but that's, that's a challenge. And number three, develop a readiness to compliment. We are so afraid we're gonna make each other proud. Look, that's probably not gonna happen. So instead of criticizing, let's learn to compliment. I had a teacher that I taught with who had Mrs. M.T. Brackbill at EMC in its early years. She was a wonderful person, and he said, she never missed a chance to compliment a student on a good essay, a good uh, answer in class. She was always affirming and complimenting her class and he said, if she was absent for a day, we were always in our best behavior because the worst thing that could ever happen was for Mrs. M.T. Brackbill to hear that you had misbehaved because she had so much faith in all of us. I think that's good advice. Let's learn to compliment. Let's learn to encourage. Let's learn that kind of talk rather than the critical talk. And that doesn't mean we don't have to sometimes take the moat out of the eye, but it's a very delicate operation. And we should make sure we don't introduce the pathogen of self-righteousness, which will only create a horrible infection in the relationship. Number two, the question is, how do I relate these teachings to people outside in the world? Well, these ideals will fail with those people out there. If they try to pursue the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount, they will fail. This was given to Christians. A good example is Marxism. Marxism says, from each according to his means, to each according to his need. Is that a good ideal? Why, absolutely. It comes right out of the gospel. But they try to make that happen by force. And it always turns into a horrible nightmare like happened under Stalin, or Mao Zedong, or Castro, or Idi Amin. That's how that turns out. They can't deal with this because I told you the other night, selfishness is is sin. Sin is selfishness. And all of us are driven by selfishness until Jesus starts the process of overcoming it. And they still have it. So what happens, and we see it happening right now in our own country, a few elites try to take hold of the power to control everybody else, make everybody else share their wealth while they keep theirs. In fact, they, they pocket the wealth that the others have as much as possible. That's what happens. I'm giving you an example how a gospel teaching will not work in the world. In fact, Marxism, the way it was practiced, was a gospel heresy, actually. Jesus warns us to discriminate. Be careful how you handle these ideals with those people. Because there are three classes of people we, picture, we get pictured in Proverbs. Number one is the simple person. It's a person that believes everything he hears. The story is told of a man. Uh, somebody came and talked to him about something, and he said, I think you're right. Somebody came on the other side and talked to him. He said, I think you're right. His wife said, honey, they can't both be right. And he said, honey, I think you're right. So that, that's the simple person. He believes everything he hears if if there's a good argument. The fool consciously is rejecting what he knows is right. That's the fool. There's a little bit of hope for him. The scorner is working to destroy both the truth and the truth giver. He's out to destroy. And don't you dare share any of this with him. He will turn and devour you. All right? Dogs and swine are those who are corrupting, are corrupt and corrupting. Their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame and shame, and the gospel ideals are absurdities to them, and they hate them. Purity will be ridiculed by those people. Nonviolence will be ridiculed by those people. Non-accumulation of wealth will be ridiculed by those people. They make no sense to that mind of the scorner. In fact, I'll give you an example. The Sunday morning after we were married on a Saturday, my wife and I got up to go to church in the city where we were. And I don't know how we chose the church, maybe the one with the highest steeple, and we didn't know any better that uh, only the Mennonites have services at 9 (laughs) o'clock. So we were early, but the pastor was having a special Sunday school class on the Ten Commandments, and we happened to walk in on the the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. And he had this little class, and he said... Now, he said, there have always been two views on this. He said, the majority view has been that it's right for Christians to kill under certain circumstances. There's a very small minority view that says all killing is wrong under any circumstances. I'm sure we don't have that view represented here this morning. So I listened for a while, and after a bit, I had a chance to say, I represent that minority view we're so glad you're here. We thought that view would not be represented. We're glad that somebody's here to tell us about it. And they started asking me questions, but it didn't take long till they totally rejected everything I said and went back to their discussion. I had cast my pearls before swine. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount was given for disciples, yet Jesus came to save the lost. So how are we to do it? Well, go back to Chapter 5, where he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Oh, those people have to see before they do. Christians can do before they see. And so he says they have to see. On Pentecost, they saw people speaking in tongues, and they said, what is this? And then Peter preached a sermon. And I really think that the pattern, the ideal pattern is For them to see some supernatural manifestation in our lives and then ask us, whether it's a death in the family, whether it's a serious accident, whether you name it, and they say, What is this? Why are you doing what you're doing? We never saw anybody act this way. Nickel mines. I had a friend who was in London when that happened. He said that was front page news and the nickel mine shooting and the response of the Amish was front page news for a whole week in the London newspapers. That was the chance and, and, and our people did. They came forward and many uh, explanations were given as to why uh, what the gospel says about that. And so, <clears throat> yes, we should look for these opportunities where we can, res- we can show this supernatural, uh, heavenly, unlimited grace, and then preach the message. Now I answer the calls from the billboard line, and I don't have a chance to give them much supernatural phenomena, but one thing I can give them is a Christian attitude. And the highest compliment they ever pay me is at the end of the conversation they say, I was expecting to speak to an angry fundamentalist, but you surprised me. This wasn't a This was a good conversation, and you gave me something to think about. See, the manner caused them to question, and we can all do that, okay? The phone team tries to give compassionate information rather than railing condemnation and Believe You Me, We Could. One half of our calls are from homosexuals. We have to discuss that horrible subject with about half of our callers. We could say, you're going to hell. You're a sinner. And say it in that tone of voice. But instead, what I do to them is I picture the kingdom of God. How God intended for this whole thing to be. And then they see that perspective and they say, well, I don't agree with you, but I understand what you're saying. And I'll have to think about it. Number three. So, oh, I'm not getting these on the board. Uh, Witness with wisdom. the next question is, well, how am I going (laughs) to make these difficult decisions and difficult uh, responses? Well, the next thing Jesus says is ask. Perceive... With prayer ask the word is asketh and in the King James Version I told you the other night usually or often not always but many times the eth on a verb means continual asking it's that Greek term that means to do it continually so keep asking, he, everyone that asketh, everyone that keeps asking shall receive, it shall be given, okay? So we should ask, it took me years to get this through my head that everyone that continues to ask, who prays persistent prayers, gets answers. And then it says seek, seek is asking plus some effort, go digging, try to learn as much as you can, learn from others. Grasp the promises and the precepts that were given. Go seek. And finally, knock. There's the persistence. Keep knocking. God marks those who keep coming. Luke 18 talks about us crying to him day and night, and those are the people that get the answers. It depends on how how much you want. How many have ever read the book uh, A Serious Call to Devout and Holy Life? One person. You folks should buy that book and pass it out and have every member read it. William Law was the genius behind the revivals of the Wesleys and Whitfield. They were all reading William Law. They were all reading this book. And one of his chapters is a whole chapter discussing you are as spiritual as what you intend to be. If you see a spiritual person, don't say, oh, well, his personality. No, 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 no. He intended to be spiritual. If you see a person who's not spiritual, He never intended really to be spiritual. And Jesus is saying, you get what you ask for. The story is told of a philosopher who had a young man come to him and say, "Uh, I would like to be wise. Can you tell me how I can be wise? And the philosopher says, sure, I can tell you how to be wise. They were standing on the beach. He said, follow me. So they go wading out into the water and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And finally, when he gets to here, the philosopher pushes his head under the water and holds it there. And he struggles and struggles and the philosopher holds him there till he's pretty well ready to expire. And then he lets him up. And the young man says, why in the world did you do that? And he was as angry as could be. And the philosopher said, well, when your head was under the water, what did you think about? Did you think about your vacation? Did you think about your business? No. Did you think about your pleasure? No. Did you think about your hobbies? No. what did you think about? Air. Well when you want wisdom as badly as you want air you will become wise perceive with prayer God always gives us the best gift which is the gift of the holy spirit in Luke chapter 11 that's how this whole thing ends shall he not give you the holy spirit those of you who ask you ask for wisdom to remove a splinter But God gave you the Holy Spirit which opened up all the resources of heaven to meet this request. It shall be opened unto you. What's the it? I think it's that cloud. It shall be opened unto you if you keep asking. God will pour out unlimited grace for an unlimited work. And then finally, and we must conclude here. Serve with self-sacrifice. Ah. (laughs) All right. And this answers the question, suppose I face a situation that's not addressed in the Bible. And we heard last night, we talked about that a little bit. Suppose I face a situation where the Bible doesn't really tell me what to do. The Sermon on the Mount is extremely brief. It's one half the length of the U.S. Constitution, and the U.S. Constitution is about a much smaller kingdom than the kingdom of God, and yet this is only a tiny little constitution compared to the U.S. Constitution. But the U.S. Constitution has an interesting clause in it. It's called the Commerce Clause. It's basically telling the federal government, these are your responsibilities no more, unless there's something that's not given to you that needs to be done for the sake of of, uh, uh, commerce between the states. It's called the expansion clause. So the government can decide whether that expansion clause gives them the authority to do certain things. Well, (laughs) this Constitution has an expansion clause. I want you to read it. You all know it. It's verse 12. Therefore, all th- things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus is choosing something within us that we can appeal to to answer this question. How shall I treat this situation where there's no direct command? And he says, look within yourself. Now, if I had been Jesus, I would have looked for something good to appeal to. But Jesus appealed to our selfishness. He appealed to that sinful part of us because he knew that every person could reference that. And so what he's saying is, think the most selfish thoughts you can think about this situation and then go do that to the other person. I think that's genius. In fact, when I read this, I always smile. In fact, Haman is the best example of that. Haman, what shall be done to the man who the king delights to honor? Well, get a crown and put it on his head. Get the robe out and put it on him. Get a horse and put him on it. Have somebody lead him through the streets and say, this is the man the king delights to honor. Haman, that's a great idea. Go do that to Mordecai. Mordecai, <laughs> And Jesus is saying, if you get into a situation where you don't know what to do, you don't know how to relate these teachings, you don't know how to handle it, just do to the other person what you want the person to do to you. That doesn't surprise me. It enlists our selfishness to the service of love. We all have it. There's nobody here that can't. Find a place of reference in his own being to know how to treat other people. That doesn't surprise me because the Bible says, My strength is made perfect in weakness. Surely the wrath of men shall praise thee. God chooses the basest things of this world. This is selfishness turned on its head to fulfill all the law and its prophets and the prophets. These gospel ideals are attainable if we take these three approaches. Correct with compassion, witness with wisdom, perceive with prayer, and if you have any questions, use your selfishness as the sense of direction that you need. Let's learn to relate the gospel to all men. Let's not defeat our kingdom ideals by behaviors that destroy our message. I conclude with a story. There was once a famous, famous German artist by the name of Hockemer. He was born in the black forest and his father was a simple wood chopper but he became a gifted artist and he moved to London and set up a studio and became very famous and very wealthy. Then his father moved there to live with him. And watching his son, he decided that he would like to do something artistic. And so he began to develop his ability to make pottery and he developed it very well and his pottery became very uh, well uh, spoken of. But as he got older, his hands became less steady, and his pottery was not what it had been one time. And he would go up to bed at night discouraged. I can't make the pottery I used to. But Hokemer would wait until his father was in bed, sound asleep, and then he would go down, and he would take the pieces he would made that day, they were still green, and he would put them on the wheel, and he would shape them per- perfectly, and then he'd set them there. His father would come down in the morning, and he'd pick it up, and he'd say, well, you know, I believe I still can do as well as I used to. That's a picture I would like us all to have. Can we put broken pieces back on the wheel and help to form them into the image of Jesus? Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, I thank you this evening that we are not left on our own to do any of this. I thank you for that unlimited grace that you're just ready to pour out The minute you see us, do something that you can support. Help us, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of what those things are and help us to grow in our courage to apply those things to our lives. And oh God, I pray that this congregation will defy the usual situation of congregations that start on a high point and go down. But I pray, Lord, that this congregation will build up and build up until people will say, That Weaver Town congregation is a beautiful example of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.